All right, y'all, why don't we go ahead and start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So just a, a brief point of housekeeping before we begin today uh, in regards to the quizzes. Uh, my intention is to do these at the end of the week for the reading of the week. Um, but as several people have noticed, and it's just, I appreciate you bringing this up and I want to be able to make it as easy as possible for you and for me, is there are some classes where I put lessons three, four, and five in one heading. So how do you know which ones fall into it, particularly sometimes where the readings may fall into the next week? Uh, Google, Cl- Google Classroom is the tool that we use. I haven't figured out Blackboard yet. Do any of your teachers use Blackboard to post readings? No. I just do- go to the check grades. That's it. Yeah, that's what I think we do too, or I do too. Do most of your teachers use Google Classroom to post readings? Yeah. yeah. So the way I've done it simply is by putting it according to units. Because the way in my mind is, how many classes do I have? How many units do I have? And trying to put it together. I, though, however, want to make it easier for y'all. Um, part of the reason Google Classroom, I don't know if y'all know this, I put in the information this year, I can simply duplicate it for next year instead of having to type it all in again. That's why we do it. So if I go in and put very, very specific dates, well, then it becomes very difficult for me to do everything for next year. Would it be easier? I know it's just a lot of things that are subdivided in different ways. Uh, Would it be easier for me to, instead of putting it according to units, putting it according to weeks? Week one, these are the the lessons. Week two, these are the lessons. And that way you can see it. And I can type in the specific day that way. It would just make it easier. Is that, who thinks it would somewhat make it easier? Raise your hand. All right, yeah. So we'll give it a shot. Look, Guillermo thinks it makes it easier too. He's there. He's not feeling too good today. Um, he's on. He's on the computer. Uh, so, so what I'll do is my goal will be by Wednesday is to have that done, and we'll give it a, ta- a shot. So you'll know. All right. Well, this week, Monday, Tuesday. I mean, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Those are the readings uh, for the different days, and we'll give it a shot. We'll see how it works. That sounds good. All right. So we're, we're so basically though, it should be simple that lessons three, four, and five will all fall into this week, which is week two. Um, and so all the readings should be done by the end of the week. Although the really important one is to do the ERDs. Although those will be brought up over and over again over the course of the semester. And that's just going to be an important document. So this is going to be. Uh, a little less abstract this week than the first two lessons, although it will be a little more abstract than the stuff that we're going to get into when we look at specific topics. What I want to do is use these next three classes to offer guiding principles of bioethics, not only from a Catholic perspective, but somewhat from a secular perspective. So what we're going to do is today is a brief introduction of like the sources of Catholic teaching um, and some broad overviews of very, very fundamental sort of meta principles. Then Wednesday, we're going to get into specific things like the principle of totality, uh, the principle of double effect. And then finally, we're going to look at virtues and sort of the role of conscience, particularly prudence in making decisions. You're going to hear the word over the next couple of days and the whole semester prudence come up a lot. Because a lot of the times the decisions that we have to make are prudential decisions uh, where there's not necessarily a clear-cut answer. So uh, let's sort of begin by addressing some of the sources of Catholic teaching on bioethics and healthcare ethics. The, the first source, as it were, and this should make a lot of sense, is going to be natural law, which, of course, we looked at last semester. Um, and, and using the recourse to human reason 
to perceive an order in creation and to participate in God's eternal law. And from this natural law, we can derive certain ethical principles, um, basic principles. The key, though, is, is that this shows, in a certain sense like sexual ethics, even though sexual ethics, I think, really draws from more revelation because you've got to see the body, sex, and fertility as sacred. This demonstrates that most of, if not many, if not most of our principles for bioethics, while they derive from revelation, come from and are rooted in natural law. And that we believe that we can use these natural law principles to be able to talk to secular individuals. I don't, I don't need a religious argument to tell you you shouldn't kill a baby. Uh, ideally, probably should not need a religious argument to say you shouldn't use IVF or you shouldn't uh, kill your grandmother. Uh, for Catholics, though, as we've seen, if you're not praying, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't have some faith, it's going to really be a struggle for you to adapt a lot of it but we're still gonna have recourse to the natural law. So it's not that we, when we say don't commit abortion, that we're imposing our religious beliefs. Most often we're not going to make a religious argument. In fact, I don't wanna make a religious argument really when we look at abortion uh, during the course of the semester. Ideally though, it gives us the ability to enter into dialogue with the secular world. Um, and so one of the things that I really wanna be able to do is look at, and we're going to do it today, some secular principles of bioethics. And if you took a secular class or a secular textbook uh, to look at some of these principles they have and to be able to say, do they, do they hold up? Do they not hold up? Many times, I think, fellows, when y'all do your CPE, and I know a lot of y'all are really excited about that <laughs> this summer, uh, I can just see the excitement on your face. You're going to be in an environment that is not necessarily purely secular, but at least not a Catholic environment. And you are going to have people with different opinions, or they are going to argue their position from a different way. So the important part is you can say, well, we believe that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, and you shouldn't kill them. Great, but there are a lot of other people who will argue from different ways. And we can disagree with them, but you've got to be able to defend yourself a little bit better and at least have an understanding of where they come from. So that's the first thing. Natural law, the basic principles is a lot what we're going to have recourse to just the, the use of human reason. However, though, we are Christians and we're Catholics and we are going to derive teaching from scripture and tradition. So where, where do we say when it comes from revelation, scripture, tradition, that we have the basis of our healthcare ethics or our bioethics. Where, where do we, we see the root of it in scripture or in revelation? Sort of, but in general, you don't give me a specific quote, just in general. Correct. Jesus is care for the sick. You could say it's Genesis because of care for creation, but Jesus is love and care for the sick, particularly the poor and the sick. And so this is going to inspire us, and the church as being the body of Christ has carried on this, this mission. Um, we've seen so many hospitals, medical systems, uh, nurses, whatnot, all sponsored by the church. And so when we care for the sick and we carry on this mission because of our deep understanding of the human body, our deep understanding of the truths of revelation, how we derive certain ethical principles um, is going to take time and reflection, and we're going to need uh, prayer, we're going to need guidance on that. But we do have roots of it in Revelation. But for Catholics, though, we rely heavily on the teaching of the magisterium. And, you know, this is something that we looked at when it came to sexual ethics. What is the, the role, or ethics in general, what is the role of the magisterium? John Paul II was very clear in very Tata Splendor that the, the magisterium has a right to speak on faith and morals. We live in a world today where most Catholics either don't care or don't even know what the word magisterium means um, and are not really interested necessarily in what the church has to say, but we priests are. 
And, and f- we're always with bioethics and healthcare ethics, probably unlike a lot of other topics, there are always new things that are coming up. You know, you had the rise of IVF, you had cloning and stem cell research, you had the COVID vaccine. I can see that the Vatican in the next few years is probably going to have to make a statement on gene editing, uh, or something more clear and definitive. The status of the frozen embryo. We, we've talked about these different things, we will. And so fortunately, as we saw the rise of healthcare and medical ethics and bioethics in the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, probably the mid 20th century, we've seen a lot more papal pronouncements. Uh, a lot more documentation coming from it. Some of the major ones, and we'll look at it, which pope of the 20th century loved to talk about medical ethics? No. This is his favorite thing to talk about. Pius XII. I mean, he's got, you thought some of John Paul II's Wednesday audiences were long, detailed, and boring. Man, oh man, Pius could do it. But, Pius, such a clear thinker and giving us really important principles that can be applied today. Um, Vatican II, of course, tries to say we need to address some of these modern issues, doesn't get into bioethical issues, but recognizes the advances of science. And then Humani Vitae. I mean, that's a very important bioethical and sexual ethical uh, document. John Paul II talked about it fairly often. I think when it comes to bioethics, his most important a well-known document is going to be Evangelium Vitae, which talks about the gospel of life, particularly focusing on beginning and end-of-life issues. However, it really has been the CDF, or what do they call it now? The DDF? The DDF. What do they call the DDT? I don't know. <laughs> the, anyhow, there have been a number of documents, all of which we are going to read and, and come to know when it comes to giving pretty clear directives on the church's teaching here. You go back in the 70s, the declarations on procured abortion and euthanasia, that's the early 80s too. Most significantly, Donum Vitae in 87, Dignitatis Personae, um, the CDF clarifications on hysterectomies we're gonna talk about, the COVID vaccine statement, and then most recently, Samaritanus Bonus uh, on the end of life issues. So it's going to be really important, y'all, that we look at these documents, particularly when they come, and to commit the major points to memory. Um, the Vatican is not going to comment on every issue. It doesn't have time to be able to do that. Uh, but I think from these documents and from what we'll talk about during the course of the semester, we will be able to have basic principles that we can use to apply to situations that we come up with. But for us in the United States, for, for those of us for here, um, outside of the Vatican documents, the most practical and important resource that we have comes from the USCCB. And that is the uh, ethical and religious directives, or they call them the ERDs. Um, it has a history of, ah, I think about, about 100 years, more or less, uh, not originally coming from the, uh, the USCCB, but I think it was in the 70s that the USCCB picked it up, or then the NCCB at the time, uh, and to be able to uh, give guidance specifically to Catholic hospitals and institutions about how to live out their faith and to practice as a Catholic institution. So while we're applying a lot of these principles to individual situations, they're mainly guidelines for hospitals, okay? So if you're working, how many of you think will be in your CPE at a Catholic institution this summer? Okay, so you're gonna probably really need to know these or at least have access to it. Not necessarily memorize it, but know what they are and and how to get them. This is gonna be really important. It's not a lot, they're very basic directives. From the preamble, the purpose of these ethical and religious directives is twofold. First, to reaffirm the ethical standards of behavior and healthcare that flow from the church's teaching about the dignity of the human person. As we're gonna see, the idea of the dignity of the human person is always going to be central. 
but also since abortion, contraception, sterilization, there's been a push for Catholic institutions to accept these things. And the bishops are basically saying, if you're going to be considered a Catholic institution, these are the rules you're going to have to follow. Because according to canon law, which you may have studied by now, for a private institution to use the name Catholic, you've got to get permission from the bishop in the diocese. So if you're going to be doing all these crazy things, the bishops are going to remove that name. So here are the guidelines for following it. Second, to provide authoritative guidance on certain moral issues that face Catholic health care today. All of these are concerned primarily with institutionally based Catholic health care services. But, of course, they give guidelines for individuals, too. The ERDs, as you may have seen, are divided into six main parts. The first is the social responsibility of Catholic health care services. So this is putting the, the idea within the context of the discussion in the context of social justice. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, during the course of the semester. The second are the pastoral and spiritual responsibilities, that you're not just there to help people, you help, help them to, to provide them the sacraments, to give them the spiritual care, because we care about them not just as bodies, but as bodies and souls, as that, that, that intimate union of body and soul. Number three, and this is the one we're going to spend a lot of time on, or we're going to draw from earliest in these next three classes, is the professional patient relationship. The patient's relationship with the doctor, the healthcare providers, the institution. What are some of the rules and responsibilities that govern that relationship? Because, I mean, heck, if you were just trying to, to work on yourself, you wouldn't need these guidelines. But healthcare is about relationship. Number four, the beginning of life. We're going to look at that in the section that deals with the beginning of life. Part five, the seriously ill and dying. And then part six, which I think are the ones that have been expanded and edited the most, collaborative arrangements with other healthcare organizations and providers, whether it would be forming out help to smaller institutions, surgery centers, uh, collaborating with insurance agencies that are not Catholic uh, and don't necessarily our same, have our same principles. And we'll also look at that. That's going to be when we sort of address Catholic healthcare within the lifespan. So we're going to come back to them, but we're going to really focus on these next few classes on Section 3 uh, and the ERDs there. All right. Are we good? These are the sources. These are the things we're going to be keep coming back to over the course of the semester. Yes? I, I just Googled uh, when I was thinking about how many Catholic hospitals there are in the United yeah. States. Uh, there are 600. Mm -hmm. And worldwide, there are uh, 5,500. And most of them are in four countries. Yeah, and this is one of the things that we will look at. Uh, I had brought an administrator in last year, but I'm going to probably just take some of those ideas that have and apply them in my own talk about it, is that the church is the, like the biggest institution for taking care of the poor when it comes to ha Catholic health care in the world. They can criticize all we want. We do a lot of good work. Uh-huh. We will have a whole class on that. We're going to wait. We're going to wait until we get to. We have a whole class on that. We're going to look at the, the Vatican has a document on the Plan B. Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at that. We're going to look at the Louisiana bishops and some of their comments on that. So uh, we're going to get to it. I hate to say we're not going to do it now, but I'm not going to get derailed on that. We have a whole class on it. Don't worry. But it's a good question. Oh, no, that's why I put a whole class on this, because there are so many. We're going to have the basic principles, and then we're going to have a good discussion about it. So I want to look at three important overall points. Now, granted, there are so many different principles that we can draw, derive our, our teaching from, but I want to look at three of them. <clears throat> And, and, and some of these are ones that we already know, we've heard, we've talked about, but I want to reiterate. The first is fundamental, the dignity of the human person. We've talked about this in every class. 
the personalism of the church in the 20th century. We've seen the fundamental teachings on anthropology and human dignity. We're not just bodies. We're not res extensa. Uh, We're body and soul. And our dignity for Catholics, besides all the fact that we have a spiritual faculty and an intellect and a will, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. That we cannot reduce the human person to a machine or more than a collection of genes and cells. And most importantly, we're not disembodied wills. So, and again, this is going to be the thing that I want to really talk about next week, which I'm kind of excited about our class, is our foundation is the dignity of the human person because we're created the image and likeness of God. Others don't see it that way. And we can't just say, well, the human person has dignity. All right, we do, and that satisfies Catholics, but it's not going to satisfy others, and we've got to understand where they're coming from. Yes? You say in just a word, like a summarized, what's a secular way to say Well, that would be receivable? Well, there's a thing I uploaded on the moral status of the human person from Beauchamp and Childress. You'll read that for Monday, then we'll discuss it. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's complicated. There's I read it. The, the 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 sort of from what I understand the the main secular bioethical textbook is by these two authors named Beauchamp and Childress, uh, used in a lot of d- different bioethical programs, and they have a chapter in there on the moral status of the human person. And I read it and I said, okay, I don't agree with them, but you can't say that they don't make an argument. They that there's something there and how we can enter in a dialogue with them as we're going to give it a shot. And so, of course, regardless if you're Catholic or you're not Catholic, I mean, here, you know, Kant was Christian, but he was the one who derived the personalistic norm, don't treat people as a means to an ends. And we, as Catholics, certainly do adapt that. This is a serious responsibility for Catholic healthcare institutions, ERD 23. So we're going to highlight it. The inherent dignity of the human person must be respected and protected regardless of the nature of the person's health problem or social status. I don't care if they're poor or they're rich, God to respect their dignity. The respect for dignity extends to all persons who are served by Catholic health care. So, you know, you should hope that if you go to a Catholic hospital, uh, each person will be treated with dignity, respect, deference, kindness, empathy, compassion. This is true in every case, and particularly, I think, if we're going to take that argument that Carter Sneed makes, particularly when the person is fragile, vulnerable, and dependent, which in a certain sense, if you're coming to the hospital, you're probably fragile, vulnerable, and dependent. You're not feeling good. And regardless, if they're poor or marginalized, now the question is, if you're poor or marginalized, do you have a right to a $100,000 surgery? Do you? And this is going to be the prudence of like, you know, okay, well then, does the, the wealthy person have a right to a $100,000 surgery? You know, particularly in his life. Is that the right thing to do? We're going to get into all these discussions. But basically, we if we're going to really kind of put it down, the person is not simply an object for treatment or a problem to be solved or even worse, uh, a a source of profit. Oh, I'm going to take this patient because I'm going to make more money off of them. It's understandable when it comes to the way the Medicare and Medicaid works, but we have to be able to treat them with dignity. This highlights the importance of relationship in Catholic health care. So it's the relationship of the institution to the patient, the doctors, the nurses to the patient. This is from that Ratzinger article that I asked you to read. Bioethics may be said to be called always to save the truth of the relationship of a person, scientist, physician, to another person who is in a condition of fragility, a person asking to be helped to realize himself and his personal potential. Hey, help me here, uh, mostly here with our physical health, but I think we're going to see there's also the need for helping individuals with their mental health. So for us as Catholics, and I think in a certain sense, even for secular bioethics, without a solid anthropology and a belief in the dignity of the human person, even and especially when they're sick, weak, and vulnerable, 
these guidelines are not going to make sense. Ratzinger again, when disconnected from the global perspective of faith and their moorings in a coherent image of man, the specific ethical replies of Catholic teaching can only be incomprehensible and be misunderstood. Particularly, I think, IVF and things that deal with fertility. If you don't understand the meaning of sexuality, the meaning of procreation, this is going to look like lunacy to those who are not Catholic. Now, I, I do want to say, and I may be getting to your, your point, Hugh, in my own reading and understanding, in contrast to a more secular bioethic bioethical system, there are two main points of contrast. I'm sure there are more outside of the fact that secular doesn't perceive God of, or a metaphysical reality. The first is the moral status of the human person, or potentially you could say the origins of the moral status of the human person. For Catholics, and I'm not trying to set up a straw man, we're not, we're not gonna set up a straw man for the secular perspective, and there are different arguments, but for Catholics, dignity is inherent and ontological. It's present regardless of whether you're conscious or you're not conscious, whether you're vulnerable or not vulnerable. But there are other ways of viewing the moral status of the human person. And often the question of what makes a human person at a subject of rights and protection. And this distinction between a human being and a human person, abor the abortion debate was the thing that really brought this out. Well, you could be a human being, but not a human person. And if you're not a human person, you don't have the same rights or the same moral status. So that's the key. The moral status of the human being outside, for Catholics, it's ontological. You have a moral status. There's always a right to life from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. However, from a secular bioethical perspective, that moral status can change and shift at different times. So we're going to see that next week. Yes? Oh, human beings versus human persons. Does that fairly uh, recent because I don't I, I think that distinction from what I understand became more relevant or more spoken of after the rise of abortion as a way to justify abortion I, I, I don't I haven't done extensive research on this but that distinction I think really comes later in the 20th century I, I think you could say yes. Again, Terry Shavis is a little bit more about the nature of food and hydration and a person in a persistent vegetative state. But yeah, it is. Like, what is the does if a person is in what would they used to call, or they still sometimes call a persistent vegetative state, does that person still have the same rights? We're, we're going to get to that. This is where some of these questions I'm going to hold off because we're going to get to them uh, in time. Well, I think that we're again we're gonna a human person is one that uh, uh, defined in different ways, but basically has a higher moral status. Yeah, it's, it's an after the fact label. Like yeah. Decided these people don't deserve uh, rights, and uh, and we have no moral obligation to give them rights, and so they just use the terminology. And that's why it goes back to the abortion so, debate. So we'll call them we'll call them beings, but not persons. It was it, it, was, it wasn't a wasn't a ground up logical argument. It was like, well, we don't think these people deserve our, our care and our time, and so we're just going to call them a being instead of a person. Well, they made the distinction to justify the behavior that they didn't want to participate. So, so basically, you know, while we might define person from this philosophical ontological perspective, personhood, as far as I understand it, it, it really deals with the context of moral status. We're going to get to that Monday. Read, read the stuff, and we're, we'll be able to get into that, that discussion. The other one, though, this is really important, and I think we're going to see it come back over and over and over again. For the Catholic perspective, we hold to the dignity of the human person, that regardless of whether you're sick or you're suffering or ill or whatever, 
you have dignity and you ought not take your life or the life of others. What though becomes sort of that key criterion for a more secular perspective, particularly when it comes to end of life issues? Quality of life, it's quality of life. Particularly in face of suffering, terminal cancer, so for us, we would say, well, well, life is always worth living. There's always hope because there's the next life, because Christ died on the cross and we can offer our sufferings for him, that suffering has redemptive value. But from a secular perspective, there's going to be certain sufferings or certain states of life, as it were, where your quality of life is so low that you have the right to end your life or potentially the life of someone else. The quality the question is like, who defines quality of life? I mean, so you, you, I posted a bunch of articles, which you're not obliged to read, but we're going to talk about, have you all been keeping up with the MAID program in Canada? M-A-I-D? So this is that euthanasia program in Canada where basically the state, I'm not, again, I haven't read all the details of it, but the state is basically saying if you know, you're a vet and you're depressed and you're a teenager and you're having a, you're schizophrenic, you can kill yourself and the state will assist that. For So it becomes, for teenagers and for these different mental states, yes. Did, did you see the article about the Canadian Paralympic gold medalist who uh, was complaining, filed a complaint that it was taking too long for a wheelchair ramp to be installed in her home and the Canadian government responded by saying, well, Suicide is not. Yes, I see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you this, qualify it's, it's for our assisted suicide program. Yeah. No. This, this, this is this is a this is the reality we were living in. This is the reality we're living in, and this is where again I would love to get into many more social justice conversations. It's something that hopefully Father will talk about, but we're going to get into. It. Yes, exactly. Oh, you, it's taking too long. Here, here's some pills. Knock yourself out. All right. So that, that, that quality of the dignity of the human person, and I'm going to say, like, really versus quality of life. How do, you, how, do you, how do you quantify quality of life? What, is that, what does that mean? And again, this gets down to, as we talked about, a very technical, utilitarian perspective. Now, here's the thing, y'all. You, you, you think that this sounds crazy, but guess what? How many of you have health insurance? In your health insurance file, wherever it is, there is an algorithm that has figured out how much your life is worth. According to all of your conditions, they have quantified it. It's, it's how it works. Is that crazy? Well, I don't know. So about how they know how long they think you're going to live in. Most of these, these companies, from what I understand, they're pretty spot on. I think about 90 to 95% of the time, they know how long you're going to live and how much money they can and will want to invest in you. But they got to. I mean, you can make it. They, they, got, they, they got to turn a profit. Maybe they turn too much of a profit, but this is how insurance works. But let, let me, I want to continue. Yes, Mortello. No, you, you go. All right. I want to go to the next point, which is very important. The stewardship of health. And again, this is going to be something, I think, very particular to Christians and Catholics. Health, body, life is a gift from God. We are stewards of that gift. And then our physical health is an integral human good. It's not an end in itself, necessarily, because if we're healthy, we can contribute to society, we can pray, we can worship. And we have a serious moral responsibility to preserve this in ourselves and others. It leads to human flourishing in so many different ways. Development, whatever you want to call it. So we could say, okay, there's stewardship. We're going to care for our bodies. We've got to care for our health and for others. However, there are two principles that the Catholics adhere to, but these are going to be two big principles for secular bioethics, which shows 
that not all secular bioethics is crazy. Uh, there are two main ones. Did anybody know? Actually, these there are more than two main ones, but I'm going to sort of give you two ones that sound very, very similar, but they are actually sort of two sides of the same coin. Non-malevolence. I'm making that spell that correctly. Malevolence. Maleficence. Did I? Yeah, I did. And then the other is beneficence. Shouldn't be spelling it. I don't know if I spelled it right. I think I did. Yeah. Beneficence. To be beneficent. Yeah, M-A-L-E-F-I-C-E-N-C-E. Sorry. Polysyllabic words this early in the morning. Difficult. So what are these two? And there's plenty of things that you can read about when it comes to both of these principles. And I think these are two. These guys, Beauchamp and Childress, who we'll talk about more, give four main principles. Um, we're going to sort of address all of them. One is non-maleficence. One is beneficence. The other two are going to be autonomy and justice. Autonomy and justice. So what is maleficence, non-maleficence? It is healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses should refrain from causing harm. You could say in some way this is connected to the traditional formulation of the Hippocratic Oath. Even if we think that good will come from it, do not do good, evil so that good may become from it. What's that? Yeah, well, well, I can't, I'm not going to have time to nuance at all, but there's a lot of nuances here. That's when you, you, you couple it with beneficence. However, they're always going to be like, you could be choosing something which is good and want to help you, but there are going to be negative side effects. If I decide to, because you have a ruptured appendix, I'm going to have to cut you open. That is not, it's going to hurt. But the good that I'm aiming for, I'm not just cutting you to cut you. I'm trying to pull out this ruptured appendix. There may be negative side effects, but I am not deliberately trying to cause you harm. I'm not just randomly cutting off a limb. Where this question of non-maleficence, which seems to be pretty commonsensical. Like, hey, I'm going to the doctor. The doctor's not going to punch me in the face. Or he's not going to... Try to kill me. However, well, we, we, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at. We're going to look at that. There's some very key principles, and we're going to Pius the Twelfth. We're going to look at some of the stuff Pius had to say, and we're going to apply it to sex reassignment surgery. The big question is euthanasia: killing versus letting die. Euthanasia: I am deliberately going to take your life versus foregoing life-sustaining treatment. What is the difference? We're going to get into that. What responsibility does the doctor, the patient have? If the doctor says we are not want to cause harm, if they're taking the life of a patient, oh, or helping the patient take their life, aren't they causing harm? Beneficence. That's the next one. Similar to non-maleficence, but more positive formulation that the doctor, the healthcare provider has a right to provide benefits for the patient to do what is good for the patient. Which means though, they're gonna to have to show kindness, caring, empathy, and compassion. But the doctor in order to provide these good things is going to have to make a risk harms assessment. Yes, I could perform this surgery, then it will help you but because you have diabetes and you're overweight, that there's a higher risk of you dying during the surgery. What's the, 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 the cost-benefit analysis there? But it also involves, and this becomes particularly in our world today, a certain paternalism. What do I mean by that, this beneficence? The doctor wants to do good for you. 
What does it mean by paternalism? True, but we generally think the doctor knows best. Oh, the doctor knows best. So he's going to make a decision sometimes that I may not, I'm not a doctor, I'm going to trust his decision. But does his decision override what I want? It's a, it's a doctor knows best that overrides autonomy. Yes, exactly, which is the next point we're going to get to. So, but what about this? And these are just, we're going to get into some examples, but we'll look at more later. What about when a patient is incapacitated? You get in a car accident and you're unconscious and you're bleeding and they bring you to the doctor. You don't have your surrogate there. Would you, it is presumed, the doctor is going to presume that you want to be treated aggressively and that you trust that what he is going to do is going to be for the good of the patient. He's not going to say, oh, well, let's just lop off a leg while we're at it. Let's do a vasectomy while we're at it. No, that you're going to trust him. And that's the paternalism. What's a great example of paternalism that we see uh, that we accept? Now, granted, it can be abused, and we could talk about that, is whenever a patient is suicidal, where you have the coroner or the physician call in what they call a CEC or PEC, uh, physician executed commitment, or they will come and pick you up. Now, granted, there's some details in, in, in regards to that. It's not that, that easy. But yeah, the doctor says, I know better than you. You are a danger to yourself or to others, so we're going to commit you. Most people would think that, that that's an okay thing to do. When doesn't it become? It's a question. But you do balance it against the big point that we really want to focus on is autonomy as the third principle. And this, I think, we as Catholics recommend it, uh, acknowledge it, although there's a certain aspect that I think we may highlight more than others. But autonomy is, I think, really the key principle for a lot of secular bioethics. But the church realizes its value. It's rooted in a belief in the dignity of the human person and the ability to choose for his or her self. So it recognizes freedom the ability to choose, and that the person has, in most cases, a capacity for autonomous choice, that they're competent, and you're clear-headed enough to be able to make a choice about your health care. And in the case of an incapacitated person or a vulnerable person, there is a surrogate who can be trusted to make those decisions. So let me tell you this now, y'all. You need to get a surrogate now. Someone, and I think making a will in your 20s is wise. I think having these AMDs and establishing some with medical power of attorney is really a smart decision. Life insurance, Life insurance can be a smart decision. You don't not necessarily have any heirs to give to, but I think at least have someone you trust. You can have all the documents you want, but if you don't have someone you trust with medical power of attorney, then then that becomes, it's, it's not just the document. The, the doctor can interpret it as he wants it. You need to have someone who has medical power of attorney. Maybe our, our, our attorney friend can teach people how to do that. But huh? he can write them for you. He could charge you for it too. I would imagine, depending on your age, you probably would go to your parents. Yeah, but find someone. All right. Could I, could I make it person who decides to kill me? Uh, <laughs> I am sure if you move to Canada, you could. So we're going to get more of this later. But the thing is, is there needs to be, particularly for more, as we get into this, this very complicated, detailed treatment, the person needs to give free and informed consent to treatment. This is the phrase, I think, at least from I see in the ERDs, free and informed consent. You got to be free to do it, not coerced, and you got to know what you're choosing as best you can. And so as a result, you have autonomy, it's going to be the responsibility of the healthcare provider and the physician to respect this. So the key ERDs are going to be 26 to 28. 26. 
Free and informed consent of the person or the person's surrogate is required for medical treatments and procedures, except in an emergency situation when consent cannot be obtained and there is no indication that the patient would refuse consent to the treatment. Now, granted, you have cases like a Jehovah's Witness who needs a blood transfusion. Okay, well, should the doctor do it if he knows it's against the, the patient's religious beliefs? No, but we'll get into that later. ERD 27. Free and informed consent requires that the person or the person's surrogate receive all reasonable information about the essential nature of the proposed treatment and its benefits, the risks, side effects, consequences, and cost, and any reasonable and morally legitimate alternatives, including no treatment at all. It's like, hey, you're not, the doctor's not going to tell you everything. You probably couldn't understand everything, but tell you enough to be able to have you make a decision. And number 28, each person or the person surrogate should have access to medical and moral information and counseling so as to be able to form his or her conscience. We're going to talk about that on Friday. The free and informed healthcare decision of the person or the person surrogate is to be followed so long as it does not contradict Catholic principles. So even though the doctor may think something is best, the person thinks something else is best, as long as they're not contradicting Catholic principles, you need to respect that person's decision. Now, other issues which we can get into later of disclosure and withholding information. Is it ever prudent for the doctor not to tell grandma that she's got three months to live? I don't know. These are things to talk about. And again, if we had more time, we could get into these discussions. This may be some, I want, let me finish to land the plane here because I don't have a lot of time left. This holds true also in cases of experimentation. Sometimes, if particularly, let's say that there's an experimental procedure, you need to know what you're getting yourself into, that it's not therapeutic. So there's therapeutic stuff and the non-therapeutic procedures. Some of these procedures could be experimental. I'll give you an example. About two years ago, I had a pretty delicate surgery done. I had a non-cancerous tumor removed from my spine at C5. If I wouldn't have had it removed, I would not be... I would, be, I would be close to being paralyzed. And I remember before the surgery, the doctor's nurse called and said, because we're Houston Methodist, we're a teaching hospital, uh, we'd like to see if you'd like to participate in a, like a, a, a trial, a medical trial experiment. So well, what is it? Well, the doctor, there's a new glue for gluing together your spine so your spinal fluid doesn't leak out. We have the traditional glue, but you could use this new glue. Would you consent to this? Uh, no. <laughs> Maybe if you were gluing my pinky together, I would, I would do it, but you're gluing my spine together. No. I like walking. Thank you. Yeah. No. I don't want to take the chance. Maybe someone else would, but see, they respected my autonomy. They didn't need to give me much information. They just said, new glue, spinal fluid. I can make my decision. I would look, I was prudent, quick, fast. So, you know, they're going to be, so we'll, we'll discuss some of these things, these non-therapeutic treatments. Like, again, you know, if there are going to be some trials for some new drug or something, which is not necessarily non-therapeutic, and you consent to it, what are the side effects? What do you know? Anyhow, I, I want to make, these are the three main principles we're going to look at or we're going to apply, and they're going to come up over and over again in our discussion. I just want to establish them now. But when it comes to contrasting Catholic bioethics to a secular bioethics, and again, I really want to be fair to the secular bioethics here. From my own experience, there are a few points we've got to make. Number one, as I've already said, for a secular bioethics, the main valid moral principle is often autonomy. Although I think we as Catholics would say it can often be interpreted as freedom as autonomy. And that's a very, very big influence on it. Quality of life often is going to trump the dignity of the human persons. We've got to be able to talk about what establishes a quality of life, what, what does that mean, how does it impact personhood. Because of what we've discussed already of the technocratic paradigm, consequentialism and utilitarian calculus, the consequentialist and utilitarian calculus often prevails, that there's not necessarily an objective morality. I, I'm not 
denying that again if you read the Bochamp and Children's book they're not denying they're not pure relativists no there are objective moral norms but sometimes they're conditioned within certain societies so in a certain sense it's socially relative historically relative but they're going to be what they call the common morality which I think is their version of natural law that we can look at all cultures and societies to see that there's certain things they've shared and we can adhere to this common morality however a lot of the times, not all the times, there can be a very utilitarian calculism, calculus. But the other thing that I think is important, which I, we can, we're going to bring up is, and we've probably already brought up somewhat, when it comes to a lot of the arguments, let's say for abortion, IVF, transgender surgery, uh, or even euthanasia, what is the argument? And I don't want to, again, I don't want to make a straw man here to tear down. Look at this poor woman. She is in this terrible situation. She should be allowed to have an abortion because she can't raise her child. Look at this poor woman and this man. They can't have a kid. We should have compassion for them. Let them have IVF. Look at this poor person struggling with gender dysphoria. They should be allowed to have a surgery. Look at this poor suffering woman. She should be allowed, morally allowed to kill herself. What is the argument there? It's emo it's emotivism. It's emotion. It's 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 a false compassion. So as much as you might want to make your own technocratic calculus and stuff come down to it, it comes down to what we would say a pit uh, an argument for compassion. So I think in the end, a lot of the times. A secular bioethic, and and even for the Catholic, and we we we're not we can't be cold and heartless people here. It becomes some type of a mix of emotivism and utilitarianism, and then you're going to see this in Catholics' mentality too. It seeps in, where you're a cold-hearted jerk because you don't care about these people. I do care about these people, but I, I think there are certain things that are objectively wrong. And inherently wrong to choose. And this is because of our adherence to and our understanding of the natural moral law and the primacy of the object of the act, which we'll get into. So these are the very basic principles. We're going to get into more detailed fun stuff Wednesday, the principle of double effect, cooperation and evil, uh, and the very, very fun principle of totality. Um, so you can read some of those sections that we've given and we'll um, come back for a later discussion. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, as is now, shall be, or without end. Amen.